The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. Okay, let me, um, let me begin in prayer and dive back in. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for Goodwill Church and their willingness to host this class. Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that tonight as we look at this complex vision, that Father, you would, by your Spirit, give us understanding. And not just understanding, but application to our lives that we might serve you more faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so last week, and uh, there are some uh, outlines up here if people didn't have them. But last week we went through the seven seals. We saw the grand vision of... That should be a sorry, it's not stapled. Um... We went through the grand vision of the throne room in, in Revelation 4, the, the, the beautiful vision of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb slain but standing with seven horns and, and um, felt the, the, that rapturous praise that, that happened around the throne to the one on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the breaking of these seals as Jesus, who alone is worthy and able to break the uh, seals and accomplish the plan of God, began now. First, the first four and the first four horsemen that came out. And we, we mentioned that in these seals, we see the upheaval that's coming about as the kingdom of God breaks in upon the kingdoms of this world. And as we did, we came to the end in the last two seals that were unbroken, uh, seal five and six, we saw two groups of people. In the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs under the altar and they were crying out to the Lord, how long? O oh Lord, holy and true, how long until you, you uh, avenge us? How long until you vindicate our names? Remember, they died with, they died with the, the, the sound of guilt and guilty, condemnation ringing in their ears, and the, the sound of God forsakenness. Where is your God now? But these martyrs went down believing that their God was the true God, the God who, as Abraham said, when when he was going up to the mountain, we, only, we learned this in Hebrews, when he was going up to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us, by faith Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, knowing that God could raise him from the dead. And these martyrs went down with the voices in their ears saying, God forsaken. But they were confident that God could raise them from the dead and that God would vindicate them. And there they are under the altar, crying out to the, to the Lord, how long, O oh God's holy and true until you vindicate your name and, and ours. Then in the sixth seal, if you remember, and we got to this right at the very end, there was another cry. And this cry came from the wicked, from the rebellious, sort of a counter cry. And they began to cry out for the rocks to fall upon them, lest they have to endure the wrath of the Lamb. So at the end of chapter 6, um, um, well, let's go to verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, 
hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, that great revelation irony, the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? So notice the rebellious are stubborn in their rebellion. They will not repent. They would rather have rocks fall upon them and be crushed than to bow the knee and to repent and to follow the lamb. So we had these two contrasting cries. Then we come to chapter 7, and now we have an intermission. We're going to see this with the seals and with the trumpets, but not with the bowls of wrath. There's an intermission here. And, and what's interesting about the, the literary structure of the thing is that we just heard the martyrs cry out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long before you avenge us, before you vindicate your name? And if you remember, the answer of the Lord to them was, you need to wait a little longer. Wait a little longer until the full number of your brothers who must die as you have are brought in. Then the end will come. So this response of waiting was given to the martyrs. And now in John's vision, we are forced to wait because we've come into the sixth seal. And if you remember, the sky is darkening. It's being rolled back like a scroll. And we think in the, in the drama of the vision, we're right at the end. The sixth seal is bringing us right to the point of final judgment. And just as it's about to come, we're going to have to wait. So the literature itself forces us to enter into the waiting of the martyrs which is our life, by the way. We, we wait. We, we look at what's going on around the world. We, too, share the cry of the martyrs. How long, Lord? How long are you going to let evil prevail? How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let your church be persecuted, especially now in, in, the, in the days and weeks and months past of what's going on over in Africa and, and uh, the Middle East? We, we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you let this? How long will you let your people be, be crushed by their enemies? And so John now uh, brings us, by way of the vision, by way of the literature here, brings us right into that waiting. And here we, I, I, I think we just need to meditate on this for a moment. That what's happening here is we are being forced to reckon with a very important theme uh, of the scriptures, and that is waiting. Don't forget the... What John has called us to in this book and what Jesus has called us to in this book is patient endurance. And maybe this is hard for, maybe you're like me. We're, we're in such an instant culture, right? Everything's now, everything's fast, everything's quick, everything's drive-through, everything's easy pass, microwavable, that kind of stuff, right? Swipe the card. You know, everything is so quick in our culture that patient endurance becomes even more challenging, I think, for us, but it's such an important theme in the scriptures. If you, if you think about so many of the great characters in the scriptures and their stories, it's amazing how many of the big ones involve waiting. Think about Abraham. God said, I'm going to give you a son, and Abraham waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he says, well, I guess it's not coming God's miraculous way through Sarah, and they hatch that plan to sleep with Hagar, and, and the Lord says, well, what are you doing? This is years later, you know. You know, I thought I was supposed to have a son. Yes, and you're supposed to wait on me. But Abram couldn't wait. And then, and then he said, I'm going to give you a land. And Abraham said, really, Lord, are you going to give me a land? He said, yes, but 
you're going to have to wait. Your, 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 your ancestors will inherit it, but after 400 years of slavery. I'm going to give you a land, but you're going to have to wait for it. Or Jacob, who was promised that the older will serve the younger, and he too couldn't wait. He grasped after it, lying to his father and deceiving his brother. He just, <coughs> he just couldn't wait. Or Joseph, who gets his vision, one day all your brothers will bow down to you. It's not that Joseph couldn't wait. He was forced to wait. He was sold into slavery and then into prison. And man, you might have, if you were Joseph, you might have been thinking you were delusional having that dream. That my brothers would bow to me. And here I am. I'm sold to, to some slave merchants. And now I'm with Potiphar. Now I'm thrown Ill, uh, unjustly into prison. And I'm rotting away in some prison in Egypt. And yet years and years later, his brothers show up. And they bow before him. And you remember Joseph? He just weeps. He just, like probably that dream came back to him. Just said, you got to be kidding me. But you got to wait. Or David, who was anointed as king at age 15, but has to wait 15 years before he actually gets to the throne. And eight of those years, his rival king, Saul, who's not even technically the king anymore, by the anointing of God, is chasing him around trying to kill him. And remember, he gets into that cave, and, and, and there's Saul doing his business. And, and, his, and his, his men tell him, oh, they're hiding that kid. like, hey, now's your chance. Go get him. Like, they couldn't wait. And God bless David because he said, no, this isn't the way it's going to be done. Two times he could have killed Saul. But he said, we've got to wait this out. And he had to wait eight years of wandering in the wilderness. So this is the pattern of Scripture. And, and we have to reckon with it because we're impatient. We have to learn to wait and have patient endurance. I think of the passage in Isaiah chapter 40, right? a passage that many of, you, uh, many of you know well. This is uh, Isaiah 40, 29 and 30, 31. He gives power to the weak, the Lord does. And to those who have no might, think about the martyrs, right? And the, the persecuted church in, in, uh, in North Korea, the persecuted church in the Middle East. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall But to those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. To those who wait upon the Lord. And this is just one of the challenges of being a Christian is learning to wait. I know it is for me. I speak for my, I'm so impatient, so impatient. But we need to wait. So we get that. The martyrs are called to wait and now we're going to have to wait. Because chapter 7 is basically going to be this big intermission, a delay in the text before we get to the end of the chapter and the, or the beginning of chapter 8 and the unloosing of the, eighth, or the seventh seal. Excuse me. But the question is still there, why? Okay, is this just an endurance thing that the Lord's going to wait us out, sweat us out? Like, Lord, why? We can still ask the question, why, Lord? Why are you prolonging your judgment? Why not just end this? We know God could. God could have saved every one of those, of those Egyptians. God, God could have saved every one of those Coptic Christians. God could have saved every one of these Christians in the Roman Empire. He chose not to. So we have to ask, why, Lord, what are you doing in this delay and in this pause? Which brings us then to the chapter we're in, chapter 7. And notice in chapter 7, we're right there. After this, he says, so the, the, these folks have just called for the, for, the rat, for the rocks to come down on them. And after this, I saw four 
angel standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that, the wind might bl- that uh, no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. So you've got to imagine the wind in this case being now the judgment of God. It, and you've got these angels, and they're holding it back. But they're ready. Oh, they're primed. They are primed to just let God's judgment sweep over the earth. That's the, that's the image here, because we're right there at the seventh seal. So the, the four, these four angels are on the four corners of the earth. They're holding back the wind of God's judgment, and they're just waiting for the cue. Give us the sign, we'll let go, and your judgment will flood over the earth and we'll be done. And so, but just as they're about to release, right? They're, they're, they got the finger on the trigger. In verse two, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. That is, so he comes with the authority of God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So what's going on here? What's going on is judgment's about to be released. These guys are ready to go. Okay, it's done. The lamb has proven worthy. He's broken the seals. Is it time? Let us just unleash God's judgment. But they're told by this next angel, hey, whoa, 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 don't, don't, don't. Hold on. Don't release that judgment. Wait until the full number of God's people have been sealed. That is what he's saying is delay the judgment until all of my people are saved. Wait until all of the elect are brought in to my church. Wait until all my children come home. That's essentially what he's saying. Hold back that judgment until all my children come home. So notice, it's not just the martyrs. Remember remember that we had the martyrs crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? And they were told, wait just a little longer until the full number of your brothers who must die as you have died come. But now notice, it's not just the martyrs. It's the full number of my people. So what's, what's going on here? Why the delay? If we ask God, why don't you just end this? His answer would be, there's more people to save. And I'm not ready to bring my full judgment until I have saved all that I intend to save. And when all my people are saved, that will be the end. Like I said last week, he will not allow one second more of injustice to reign or to have it stay now one second more than in his purposes is necessary. So here judgment is delayed until the full number of my people have been sealed. We're going to talk about this here in just a second. Let me give you what are the old Testament background, the old Testament background to this story. There's, this is being drawn from, from the old Testament. So they, they're about to unleash, and this angel comes along and says, no, 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 hold back until all of God's people have been sealed. Now, the Old Testament referent here is Ezekiel, if you're interested. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I'm inclined to read it, but I'm, I want to save time, so I think I'll just summarize it, but I'll give you the text. You can go check it out if you'd like. In Ezekiel 6, Ezekiel sees a vision. He sees four men with swords drawn, ready to go execute God's judgment. God is, God is um, angry at his people for their idolatry. And he sees in his vision four guys with swords ready to go and just destroy Jerusalem. And then another guy, a fifth guy, shows up. And this guy doesn't have a sword, but he has an inkwell. Kind of an odd 
image, but he has an inkwell on his belt. And he says, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't inflict the judgment that you're ready to go do until I go and mark out all of the righteous. So he goes out with the inkwell and he marks off all those who are not to be destroyed in the judgment. And when he's done, he says, it is done. And the four men with the swords go and it's, it's actually pretty gruesome. Just utter destruction. Slaughter everybody. This is the word of the Lord in Ezekiel. Go destroy everybody except those who have been sealed. Except those who have been marked out by me with the pen, this angel and his inkwell. So that's one Old Testament image that's behind this because that's exactly what's going on here. These angels are ready. This time it's not men, it's angels to release the judgment. But whoa, not until all God's people have been marked out so that his judgment does not affect them. Of course, the other background image to this is the Passover. Right? It's another uh, image, a story that we're all familiar with. Think about that story. It's very similar to this also. If we imagine Egypt and the story of Egypt to be sort of a microcosm of the grand story of God coming to deliver his people and judging his enemies, then we see this same thing worked out, right? And we're going we're gonna to reference this again with the trumpets coming up here. God comes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. He doesn't let them go. He oppresses the people of God. And finally, we come down now to the 10th plague. We're right there at the sixth, right? We're right to the seventh seal, if you will, in the story of Revelation. And God now is going to bring that final judgment. He's going to kill the firstborn. And then we know how it ends. They're going to be washed up in the Red Sea. But before he brings that final plague, almost holding back the angel of death, hold on, wait a second, until my people are marked out. And this time, they're not marked out with a guy with an inkwell. But as you know, they're marked out with the blood of the lamb. And all of a sudden now, just in these stories, we can hear we have blood of a lamb. We hear revelation, right? We just, if we're saturated in the scriptures, then we have the context for these kinds of visions. These guys are going to be slaughtered. They're firstborn of everyone in the land. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Every firstborn is going to die unless you have been marked out. In this case, with the blood of the lamb, not on the forehead, but on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes, if he sees that blood, he then passes on, accepting the blood of the lamb as a substitute for the blood of the firstborn. And when he's done, it's complete devastation. The firstborn of everybody, including Pharaoh himself, is killed. No one is spared. And then Egypt is washed up, if you will. Their whole army is washed up in the Red Sea. So in this vision now, this, this delay vision of chapter 7, we're being told, here's why we're delaying. Here's why God endures patiently the suffering of his people, which brings him no delight. We're going to see that again in our text. It, it brings God no delight to watch his people suffer. Precious to the Lord, the scriptures say, is the death of his saints. Precious to the Lord is the death of his saints. God is not capricious with the lives of his people. But why the delay? Because God is at work. He's doing something. He's marking us out. The readers of this were in 90 AD. I'm sure they were crying out, oh Lord, how long? Please just end this. But aren't you glad he waited 2,000 years? Because you've been included. You've been marked out. And who knows? Now we're crying out. Oh, God, please. You know, every generation wants it just to come. Lord, just please come and end this thing. But hey, the Lord has people he wants to save. And this text is telling us with the martyrs, hey, brothers and sisters, 
you've got to wait a little longer. You've got to wait a little longer until the full number of your brothers and sisters come in. And it's going to be a hard road. It's going to require patient endurance, but you need to wait. Now, how have we been sealed? We don't have the blood of the lamb over our doorposts. Of course, we have been marked out with the blood of the, the lamb that was slain, even Jesus. But according to Paul in Ephesians chapter one, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That you've been marked out or sealed with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is marking out his people through all history. And what does it mean to be sealed? What, what does it mean here when he says, don't do this until I've sealed? The, the word is an important word. It's, it's not a frivolous word. Don't do this until I have sealed the full number of my people. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. What is the importance of that word? What's it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? It means to be owned by him. The, you can think of a seal like, a, like a, I, I know I have for some of my books, uh, you know, a, a seal. Christina got me one years ago, you know, so you go to the first page and you press that thing and it presses into the book and leaves a seal. You know, my initials. This book is owned by... by W-H-S. Uh, so, so fine, you, you seal it right into the pair. And, and in that way, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That ink blot, that, 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 that blood on the doorpost, the Holy Spirit that's been given to you is saying you are owned. You are possessed by the Lord. And not just possessed, but you are preserved. You're protected. We're going to see that again in some beautiful imagery in this text. But that's what it means. You, have, you are owned by the Lord and you are protected by the Lord. And now when this judgment comes out, you are free. You are safe from judgment. I wonder if you believe that in your bones too, by the way, just as a little aside, if you're really free from judgment. That if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have that blood on your doorpost, that ink on your forehead, that Holy Spirit sealing you, do you realize that all Every single bit of God's judgment against you is gone. Every single bit. That means that in Christ, everything that God does for you or toward you, everything is love. Never anger. Now, don't get me wrong. There can be loving anger. There can be discipline. And sometimes discipline hurts. But if you are in Christ, there's no more judgment if you're in Christ, there's no more wrath, right? It's only ever love. Even the hard things are only ever love. The scales are not going back and forth for you with God. Oh, today I said some curse words and I didn't do my devotion, so now he's angry at me. And Oh, but today I really spent some time in prayer. I even witnessed to somebody kind of at the deli, and so that's good. And so it kind of tips back and we're playing God like this. No way. Not according to the scriptures. If you're in Christ, the scales are tipped fully and completely in your favor so that now everything God does with you, to you, and for you is love. You're sealed. No more judgment. All your judgment has been taken by the lamb that was slain. So we have this, we have this sealing here. Later, we're going to see the, the beast is going to do a very similar thing. He's going to mark people's foreheads with the number 666. But notice when we get to that text, it will never say he seals them, but he marks them. They get the mark of the beast. They are never sealed by the beast. You know why? Because the beast can't protect his people. Right? The beast uses his people. The beast manipulates his people. The beast enslaves his people. The beast can never protect his people. But Jesus Christ, God himself, seals his people with the Holy Spirit. Just an interesting contrast. The Lord seals, the beast can only mark out. 
So the image here is this. God's people are going to go through trials. We're going to have to endure the trials of the, the seals, to be sure, the upheavals of this age, but never God's judgment. So that whatever we suffer is never judgment, but always ever the refining work of God toward us. But when we pass through the fires, I, have, I, I thought about, as I was doing this, the line from uh, that great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not thee overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Christians will go through great trials, but every trial we go through is being used by the Lord to refine us. Fire burns up hay, wood, and stubble, but precious metals it refines. It skims off all the garbage and brings it up to the top. And all the trials that you endure in life, if you are a Christian, if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, are for that refining work. He is conforming you to the image of his son. And then secondly, the redemptive work. He is going to use your sufferings to do his purposes. He is going to use your sufferings to accomplish his purposes. Don't forget, like we said last week, or somewhere, a couple, I don't know, Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. God's going to build his church through the suffering of his saints, even as he did through the suffering of his son. So, going back to the text, let's think about this group. Let's think about us. Because here we get a wonderful, beautiful vision of us. Because that's what the waiting is about. The waiting is for you and for me. And the waiting is going to be for your children and your grandchildren and your great, 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 great grandchildren until the Lord is pleased to come again, until the full number is there and then he will come. So let's think about them. They're represented in this number 144,000. Now we got to think about this because if you know anything about the book, this number is a familiar number. People do all kinds of crazy stuff with this number. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is the 144,000 original Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to inherit the earth. Many people view this to be 144,000 ethnic Jews that will one day inherit the earth. I just think we're, you're trying to be way too particular with a number in the book of Revelation. And as I hope I've made the case, uh, but it's up to you to work through, uh, you just don't read numbers in Revelation that way. They're just not meant to be that specific and that particular. Something else is going on with this number 144,000. It's a symbolic, representative, and in fact, beautiful number. He says, don't send the judgment until the full number is sealed. And then I heard, he says, verse four, then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Now let's think again what you have to do to get 144,000. It's a derivative of 12. And I'm not doing numerology here. I'm just saying, why does he pick that number? Does he literally see 444,000? I will tell you, no, he does not. I'll make that case in a second. What's the significance of this number? It's a derivative of 12. 12 is an important number in this book. 12, to the, to the uh, reader of scripture, represents, it's a representative number of the people of God. Hence, 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes. It's a representative number for all God's people. When Jesus chooses disciples, is it just a coincidence he can only round up 12? He's looking for that 13th guy. And then isn't it interesting that after when Judas is gone, they feel the need to get another guy to replace him, and they get Matthias in there. We need 12. 
12 was an important and representative number. It represented the number of the people of God. But to get 144,000, we have 12 times 12. It's 12 squared, 12 perfected maybe. It's perfection times perfection. The fullness of God's people times the fullness of God's people and then times 1,000, which I'll argue in the book of Revelation just means a great number. What is John here? I heard the number of the sealed to be the fullness of God's people times the fullness of God's people times 1,000. It was a complete number and it was a great and awesome number. Now, again, you may question me on this, but I'll, I'll make the case a little bit further along as we go that that's, I think, what's going on here. The 144,000, I will argue, is all of us. It's all God's people throughout all the ages. It's the fullness, this awesome number of the fullness of God's people. So the number is 144,000. Then we get this list, and this is why, by the way, some people say it represents ethnic Jews, because he turns, he says, I heard it was 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then we get there's 12,000 from the tribe of Judah and 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, and so forth. Down we go. Now, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. And, and what I give you on this, I'm taking from Richard Bauckham, which is one of the guys I, um, I referenced early in the course as a book that would be good to read, Theology of the, uh, of the Book of Revelation. I can't remember if he makes this point in that book or in the, the larger work, Climax of Prophecy. But Balkum says, when you see lists like this um, in the Old Testament or in Jewish history, uh, extra-biblically, it was a census. What what you have here is is sort of a mock census. And when lists like this were made in the Old Testament, a census was being taken. And generally, the reason the censuses were taken within Israel's history was in preparation for war. You would take a census like this so that you had some idea of how many fighting men you had. Usually the censuses were only the men. That's what generally the censuses were for. According to Bauckham, I'll take his uh, word for it on this. It's the, it's the best I've heard in trying to get uh, to this point. And Bauckham argues that therefore what we see in this list is essentially the mission of the people who are called. That here we have this gathering of this 144,000 and then this little census. There were 12,000, each each of them the fullness of God's people times 1,000 from every single tribe. We would make a mistake, according to Baucom, if we said it's actually people from the tribe of Judah and actually people from the tribe of Benjamin. That's not the point that John is giving us. Rather, this is a representative group of the whole people. But that what we are learning here is that this group is gathered for a purpose and that purpose, according to him, is holy war. That you and I have been called. There's a delay and we're being gathered in, but we're being gathered in not just so we can go to heaven when we die, but that we are being gathered in to go to holy war. You are called to be soldiers of the cross. According to Bauckham, that's the point of this list. This 144,000 is being gathered to be a holy army to the Lord. And again, I, I, I think we can make this point elsewhere in the scripture, but we can certainly make it elsewhere in the book. We're going to see this group pop up, 144,000 after the sixth trumpet, and then we're going to see them later at the Battle of Armageddon as they come along behind the rider on the white horse and they go to war with their Lord. So I, I, there's, there's reasons to say Bauckham is reading this 
properly. We are called to war. You may not feel like a warrior, but it's what you're called to. You and I are called to put on the full armor of God every day and to go to war against Satan, the principalities and the powers, to go to war against our sin. And that's the image that, according to Bauckham, we're receiving in this text. Now, we have to be warned here to watch the bravado. Right? Do, you, do you view your life as, as warfare? Do we wake up every morning and think, I've got to put on the armor because I've got to go to war today? I'm in, a, I'm in the midst of a battle, whether I like it or not? Yeah, we should. But we have to watch our bravado when we start thinking about warfare because we must remember that in this vision, we go to war, but the strategy of the war is the strategy of the lamb. It's a cruciform strategy. We win by dying, glory through shame, strength through weakness, power through suffering. When, when, those, when those brothers were killed in Egypt, uh, in uh, Libya, the Egyptians, I think I told you last week, I was at a truck stop coming back from Alabama when I was watching it. And, and uh, I was watching an interview by one of the um, brothers of, I think he had two brothers. I later heard a radio interview with this guy. It was all in Arabic, but, but uh, it, I was watching the thing as he, was, as he was talking. I'm watching this and hearing that these 21 guys were executed. They're executed. They refused. Time after time, they refused. To, to deny their Lord, and then they die singing. They're singing as they're beheaded. And the brother, this is on CNN or something, so I'm, watch, I'm reading the script, because I'm at a truck stop, and I'm reading the script of this guy, and he's saying, but we rejoice. We rejoice. He says, I, I'm excited and happy that my brothers and all that were there were faithful to their Lord. And I'm like, wow, praise the Lord that this is being broadcast on whatever channel this is. It's amazing. And I had the thought, look, don't get, immediately our hearts are heavy when we hear news like this and we grieve and we should grieve to a certain degree. There's no question about that. But revelation was in my head. And I thought as I viewed that, this is how the Lord wins the battle. This is how the Middle East will be converted. It's going to come through the death of those men. Those men's death will not be in vain. But the way the lamb fights, the way the lamb wins wars is on the cross. And so while we grieve those men, and I'm not in any way minimizing it, I'm magnifying it, that when I hear about the death of these martyrs in in Libya or in Syria, I think their days are numbered. They're going down. This is how the lamb conquers Those men knew that they were in a war and they also knew that victory came by dying. Again, Joseph Zahn, if you listen to it, what does he say to his, his man who's interrogating him? Sir, your greatest weapon is killing me, but my greatest weapon is dying. Your greatest weapon is killing me, but my greatest weapon is dying. There's a man who understands he's in a war 
And there's a man who understands the weapons he's called to use and the strategy that the lamb has given to him. So here we have this 144,000 gathered to be this mighty army. And you and I are in the midst of the battle right now. We got to put on our armor and go to war. But don't forget, your shield is faith. Your sword is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And so we need to, we need to think about it. Our, our strategy is cruciform for now. By the end of the book, it will no longer be cruciform. By the end of the book, it gets bloody. And I don't say that to, to be triumphalistic. I don't say it just for shock. It's just the truth. Christ comes as a lamb. He comes back as a rider on a white horse with a sword ready to slay. And so for now, our strategy is cruciform, but it will not last forever. So we have the number 144,000. Then if we accept Balkum, and if we don't accept Balkum, I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that list. And then in verse 9, we have the interpretation. And here's where I want to come back and and bolster the case I made about the 144,000. Because in verse 9, he says, After this, I looked, and behold, a a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is an interpretation now of what John has just told us about. There's a little pattern here in this text Uh, that I want to point out to you. If you have your Bibles open, in verse 4, notice he says, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And then verse 9, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could count or number. Now that is an interesting pattern that occurs several times throughout Revelation. I'll point it out to you when we get to it. But it's already happened in Revelation chapter 5. We looked at last week. Remember in Revelation 5? He's weeping and weeping because there's no one worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. And then then one of the elders steps up and says, don't don't weep. Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He he has prevailed to to open the scroll and to loose its seals. He's, He's worthy. He's a champion. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah has done it. And then what's it say? And I turn to see. And what does he see? A lion? He sees a lamb. And what he sees interprets what he hears. So he hears there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And the moment, remember we said, the moment you get this grand vision of a triumphalistic king of the jungle, the kind of king Jesus is, what does it mean to be the lion of the tribe of Judah? To be a lamb, slain, yet standing. The pattern of I heard and then I looked. I heard and what I saw interpreted what I Heard, and that's what we get here. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. But what does he see? When he turns now to see the 144,000, what does he see? After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. I just want to take a moment to think about, uh, because again, this is us. This is us, and all the saints through all the ages gathered here. Let's just, let's just enjoy this beautiful vision that John gets of us. First, it's not 144,000. 
It's uncountable. It's uncountable. In heaven, there will not be a tiny little remnant of people. It will be a host that is uncountable. I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could number. And not only is it uncountable, but it's universal. Right? It's multicultural, multilingual. Just so, It's diverse. It's from every race and every tribe and every tongue and every language. Again, here's the encouragement of the book of Revelation. You feel, especially in New York, right? In, in New York, it may be getting worse, but nothing like my brother in Germany, right? The church, the Christianity feels like a small little remnant group. I go over to visit my brother in Germany. I mean, we're like, it's like Alabama up here. You go to Alabama, it's a different story. It's not like New York. They don't know what New York is like. <laughs> New, York, New York's rough sledding for the church, but nothing like Germany. And Germany's nothing like North Korea. You know, if you're a Christian in these places where it seems like you're just part of something little, oh man, the the book of Revelation is so encouraging because it tells you you're not part of something little. You're not part of something insignificant. You're part of something cosmic and grand. You're part of a host that cannot be counted or numbered. It's encouraging. That's where this book is going. And that's where we're going. It's what you're part of. So first, This group is uncountable, universal. Secondly, from this text, this group, us, are standing. We're uncountable and we're standing. Still in verse 9. I saw this group no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know what's awesome about that? You know what's so awesome about this image of them standing? Go back to the end of chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, these people are crying for the rocks to fall on them. And they're calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? And then John gets a vision of the church and they're standing. Who can stand in the presence of the wrath of God? I, we can. I, I can stand. We can stand. God's people have the privilege of standing in the presence of the Almighty and Holy One, of the Lamb with the seven horns, this wrath of the Lamb. His people are able to stand. With my seniors at Chapelfield. We're talking about, we're doing a discussion on Christian liberty and how we have to be careful not to judge one another and how we manage judging one another and yet pursuing righteousness in terms of things that the Bible doesn't command or prohibit. And we're reading through Romans 14, and it just struck me because of this. That in Romans 14 and verse 4 it says, look, don't, don't judge another man's servant, right? We're all servants of the Lord and we're going to all have to answer that. You're going to have to answer the Lord for the decisions you make in your life. I'm going to have to answer to the Lord for the decisions I make. And, and we'll have to all give an account. But he says, he will have to stand before the judgment of Christ. And then in verse 4, this amazing little throw-in line that Paul makes. Let me read it. I'm, I'm quoting here and I'm botching it. But I want to, I want to read it because it just struck me. And it's, it's a wonderful little statement. Uh, Romans 14. Let no one... Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let no one who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on another servant of another? It is before his own master he stands or falls. Okay, so we all have to give an account. But then listen to this little line Paul throws in there. And he will stand. Right? If it's a Christian brother, he said, and he will stand. The ESV says, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Isn't that great? You're going to mess up, man. You're going to mess up. You're going to make terrible decisions, right? Where you should fall, where you're done. Uh, let me be careful not to judge because you're going to have to either stand or fall before your master one day. But if you're in Christ, he will make you stand. <laughs> that is just awesome. Yes, we stand before the throne. You know why? Because like John, we've seen him. We've fallen dead before him. We've confessed our sins. We've said, I'm not worthy. And Jesus, what does he do in chapter one? As John falls dead before him, makes him stand. He he stands him up. And he says, do not fear, John. I am he who died and is now alive. So we're uncountable and we're standing. I just love that vision of standing. Then thirdly, not only are we uncountable and standing, but we're victorious. This is verse 10. Uh, no, still nine. And they were standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The white robes, as we said in the letters, is a symbol of victory. These are victory over all the enemies that oppose them. They are victorious over their own sin. Here they are, washed and white. We're going to come back to that in a second. And the palm branches was a symbol of victory. And then not only are they victorious, but finally they're singing. And they're crying out with a loud voice. You ever been in a room, a large room of people who are singing? You were just down at the Ligonier Conference, weren't you? I'm sure you were doing some singing down there. It's awesome. You get in a room with a bunch of Christians and you're singing. It's majestic. This is what we have to look forward to. They're singing. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then this singing inspires this reaction from the angels and the 24 elders. They immediately start falling down before the Lord when they see this amazing universal host standing in white robes and palm branches and singing. They fall down face uh, face first before the Lord and they just say, Amen. Yes, it's true. And then they praise and notice the seven things again. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God everything. All praise, all honor, and all glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a, what a just an awesome vision, majestic vision of God's church gathered together. I mean, all of a sudden you forgot we're waiting for the end to come. Like we're waiting, we're in between the sixth and seventh seal. But if this is your vision, you're like, man, I can, this is awesome. We're not, almost, you're not even crying out now. How long, oh Lord, how long? Because you just see, you see what it's about. That's why this vision has to be your vision. That's why you've got to just get this into your bones. You've got to believe that you, this is what you're part of. And if you will, you'll be able to patiently endure. Then I love it. Then we get a question. We get this quirky little conversation that pops into the text. So John is, John is seeing this grand and glorious vision. And, and he's, can you, he's just standing there, slack jaw. I just, oh, wow. Like innumerable, innumerable host, and why they're singing. And the angel must be standing next to him because he interrupts and he just starts talking to John. <laughs> it's just, I don't know why I find it funny. It's just quirky. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, or one of the elders, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So he gives John a pop quiz. 
Right? He's just, he's standing there, and he, he, John's slack jaw, and he says, hey, who, who do you think they are? Where do you think they've come from? And I really love John's answer. Because he says, sir, you know. <laughs> he's, basically, he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to give the wrong answer. He's like, um, you must know. You know that, that vision in Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel gets the vision of the dry bones? And the Lord says, Ezekiel, son of man. And he's just looking over this valley. He's just full of dry bones. And he says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, um, you know. <laughs> he, just, he, he doesn't want to give an answer. So John gives that, I don't, I don't know. He's just so overwhelmed. Sir, you know. And listen, we get, now we're going to increase what the Lord says, this grand vision of us, again, with I don't know how many, six, seven things. So I want to go through them again. Let me just read it, and then I'll draw some attention to them. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall never hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's just draw some attention to these. Who are these, John? And then the elder answers him, first, they are those who have gone through the great tribulation. These are people who have suffered. And as we've already said, the great tribulation is not that last seven years or last three years before the second coming. It's now. It is the whole age. This is the great tribulation. John said, I am your brother, your partner in tribulation. Right? This is the tribulation. Who is this? It is all of us. This vision is for you and for me to rejoice in. Secondly, who are, who are these? They are those, the elder says, who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Here again is a beautiful revelation irony. Tell me some blood you can wash something in that makes something white. But the blood of the lamb does it. The blood of the lamb takes your dirty garments and when you wash it in that blood, if you believe the vision of Revelation, it makes them clean. To the world, this is foolishness. But to those who have Revelation as the truth, the vision they see things through, it makes absolute sense. This beautiful Revelation irony. And it explains why when we saw these saints, this 144,000 uncountable group, why they were in white robes. They didn't make their robes white. They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is basic Christianity. This is the basic gospel, the glorious gospel, that we stand victorious only because of the victory of Jesus Christ. That's why we can never be triumphalistic as Christians. That's why I can never, I can never, it can never be bravado. Because the only reason I'm standing here in a white robe is because of the blood of that Lamb and that I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a pure gift of grace. So who are we? We're those who have come through the great tribulation. We're those who have washed our robes in the blood of the lamb. Thirdly, we are those who serve the Lord at his temple day and night. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. 
Again, we've been saved to serve. That's what we're called to do. And he's saying that's what characterizes the people of God. They serve him day or night. Fourthly, we are those possessed by God. Possessed by him. Remember the seal. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Will cast his tent over them. These are my people. So they are possessed by God. Fifthly, they are protected by God. And you get that with the tent image. He, uh, he will, or he will shelter them with his presence. But then this beautiful protection and relief that we who have come through the great tribulation will enjoy, verse 16, the protection and relief. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Right? These different images of the suffering of God's people, it's over. It's over. Now, if you're reading this and you're in the midst of the suffering, you, this has to be your story. This is what you're, you're looking forward to. You look at that and say, yes. Yes, it's there. It's coming. That's what, that is worth everything. That is worth patient endurance. Yes, no more suffering, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching sun. Then sixthly, another beautiful revelation irony. There are those who are shepherded by the lamb. Right? Usually the, the shepherd shepherds the lamb, but not with revelation vision. In this vision, we are shepherded by the lamb. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. This lamb, we find out, is the good shepherd. He's the only true shepherd who does not abandon his sheep, but does what actually no good shepherd would do. Lays down his life for the sheep. Look, the sheep are great, but they're not that great. But this shepherd lays down his life for these sheep. He's the good shepherd, the shepherd of Psalm 23, the Lord who is my shepherd, who leads me to springs of living water, who leads me into green pastures, who leads me through the valley of the shadow of death because he died. Why do you and I only walk through a valley of a shadow? Because of this shepherd, because this lamb that shepherds me is the lamb that was slain. Now for me, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil. Because Jesus endured it for me. What an amazing shepherd this is. A shepherd unlike any other shepherd. Yes, you want the lamb to shepherd you. So again, this wonderful, beautiful irony. And then finally, we are those who are comforted by God. And as we reference this early in the text, it just doesn't get more beautiful than this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I just think this text could have said, this text could have said, and they won't cry anymore. And we all would have been like, man, isn't that awesome? It could have just said, and they won't cry anymore. And they will stop crying. And we would have been like, yes, hallelujah. But it's not what it says. It says, and he will wipe away every tear. That is, and what he's saying here is, your tears matter to him. They're not irrelevant to him. 
The Lord's not unbothered by your tears. So that he can just say, enough of that now. You don't have to do that anymore. No, no. He comes to you like a parent, as we said earlier. Comes to you as a parent and wipes, personally, wipes your tears away. It's a wonderful, beautiful, amazing image. So I just don't think you do better than Revelation chapter 7 when it comes to a glorious vision of God's people and the church. I feel like we should just end. We should pray. We should sing and just go home. But we have more to do. We have more to do. Anyway, rejoice rejoice in that. Let's just get into the seventh seal. I have so much to do tonight. But um, let's just get into the seventh seal. And that'll set us up for the trumpets right after coffee. Um, So we get this grand vision. And now we know why we wait. When the martyrs are told to wait a little longer, that's what it's about. And to that we can say amen. In chapter 8, now the seventh seal were brought right to the end. And there's some amazing stuff in here too. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So we get this vision of the end with the rumbling and the, or if not, the end than this foreshadowing of the end because tucked into this seventh seal is now going to be a whole nother series of seven. We're going to come to the seven trumpets. So in the text, we do not technically reach the end, but we've kind of been brought right to the end and now we're going to loop. We're going to be on a loop. We're going to loop back. Remember how I used the illustration of the football play and we're going to see it from the quarterback and then we're going to see it from the blockers and then we're going to see it from the wide receivers running their routes and And so now we're going to loop back in the trumpets and we're going to look at the same period but through different lenses. But before we do, before we do, we get this seventh seal and notice just one shocking thing right at the beginning that now as we come to the very end and the lamb opens the seventh seal, there was silence. And what if we're tracking along with the book, which maybe if we were just reading it straight through, we would be like, what? Silence? Because we'd remember back to chapter four where it said, and the ones gathered around the throne just constantly, they're singing, the angels are singing, holy, 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 and the 24 elders are bowing down, and the multitudes are just singing, and ceaselessly, that's what they, we're just praising the Lord, and then, whoosh, silence, for about half an hour. Don't take the time literally, it's not like, okay, go, you know, they all start singing, not that, not that, just half hour means a short time, oh, it was not long, but silence in heaven. Let all mortal flesh be silent. The uh, uh, text here is, Zechariah, there's two of them, one in Habakkuk and one in, in uh, Zechariah 2. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. When the Lord comes to bring the final judgment, it's silence and awe. And even the heavenly host, stop. They're just in awe of what's about to happen. One, the judgment, the glory of God finally vindicated the new heavens and new earth, it's all coming down. And so there is silence. And then, just as a little side note, 
you, you have something fascinating in this because there's silence and then the seven angels are standing there and they're ready. They're given trumpets. We're going to get to that here in a second. Another angel came and stood at the altar. Remember, we heard about this altar already. It's the altar under which the martyrs are crying and praying to the Lord. Oh, how long? How long, O oh Lord? It's the altar of incense in the temple, in this heavenly vision of the temple. And so now that we come to the end, it's interesting. The angel comes back to that temple or to, the, to excuse me, to that altar. And the prayers of the saints are being lifted up. And notice that the prayers of the martyrs, but it's not just the martyrs, right? It says the prayers of all the saints are included in this amazing text. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So this angel comes and he takes all our prayers And here, particularly, prayers for vindication. Prayers, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those those big vision kingdom prayers are there, all piling up on the altar. And the angel comes and he grabs the prayers and he brings some incense, sprinkles our smelly prayers, you know, because our prayers are all muddled with all kinds of reasons why we want things. But but he mixes them with this incense and brings them to the Father. And the Father says, yes. Let me do it. The fa- I mean, what, what's interesting here, again, this is just something that didn't have to be in the text. If we just said, and he broke the seventh seal, and then he threw fire down. We go, yeah, finally. But instead, it says, our prayers played some part in this. It's just like a little throw in there about the importance of prayer. And the, signif- excuse me, the significance and the efficacy of your prayers. That somehow... Our prayers have an efficacious role within the accomplishing of his purposes. It's a mysterious role. In some, Of course, God does not need our prayers. He most certainly does not. But he wants our prayers. And he chooses to work through our prayers. Why do we pray for each other just on a smaller scale? Forget thy kingdom come. Why do we pray for one another? We don't need to. God certainly can heal. Why do we feel compelled to do it? And why don't you just pray? Why are you asking me to pray? Why do we feel compelled to ask other people to pray for us? Because God says do it. It's an act of love. God wants us to play a role. God God can do things himself. Of course he can. But he wants you to participate. And he wants to share it with you. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. But he wants you involved in your prayers. And here we see those prayers have a role. Those prayers are brought up. And the father says, throw the fire down. In his time... You know, in James 4, there's that interesting passage. He says, phenomenal. If, if, if it wasn't in there, we might not believe it. He says to, to his readers, you all do not receive because you don't ask. That sounds like, wait a second, what? Man, it makes me want to start asking. You don't receive, he says in prayer, because you don't ask. What have we not asked for? What is the Lord waiting for us to ask for? He doesn't have to wait. Of course, he doesn't. it's not like he's bound by our prayers, but he wants us to pray. He wants us to participate. Are we praying for our brothers in the Middle East? Are we praying for the evangelization of the Middle East, for the world? Are we praying the big prayers, thy kingdom come? Are we praying for the end of abortion in this country? Like, are we praying for these things or are we just hoping they happen? I usually just hope they happen. Be honest about me. I usually just hope they happen. But then James comes along and says, you know why you don't receive? Because you don't ask. And here we see the efficacy of the asking. Yes, it will be answered. So the point is ask and then wait. 
Lay it before your father. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to participate. He gives you a role within even the coming of the kingdom. Within the final end, you have a role to play. Ask and wait. Ask. Ask again and wait. Because God's not a vending machine. It's not like you ask and then you get. You press A4, you get the Snickers. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. And because then he turns right around and he says, oh, but you. He's like almost he turns. He says, but you ask and you don't receive. You know why? Because you ask for the wrong reason. You're like, hey, wait a second. This is getting tricky. A, it is tricky. We ask for, and he says, you, you know, he calls them adulterers. You ask because you just want your own stuff. You're not interested in the glory of God. So we got to balance that. But pray, 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 ask. And the Lord here, we see our prayers playing a role <clears throat> within the coming of the kingdom. Now, we're going to break for coffee. But as we do, we're going to usher now into the seven trumpets. And so, again, we're just looping back. We're going to look at the play now through the wide receivers. We're going to see it from a different angle and uh, see what we can get out of that. So a short coffee break because I got to put I got to get through these trumpets. All right, let's break. All right. I don't want us to go late, but it is, I, I, we got to try to get through this um, chapter nine, eight and nine. So, um, so some of this. I don't ever want to say you got to take my word for it because I want you to go look it up. But I will not be able to defend. Uh, I will not be able to defend everything just for time's sake. So what? Just take it this way: when we go through these trumpets, because th- there's going to be some crazy stuff going on here. And all I'm going to be able to do is say, and please, I'm no expert on this. It's not like I have, I have worked all of this. I've done the math. I know what this is. This is challenging stuff, and um, I'm just going to tell you what I think, and then you can say, oh, man, you're so far off on that, or, uh, or go read on it. I'm just, I just don't have time to defend everything, so uh, not that I even could defend some of this stuff. I just got to trust when I read a bunch of commentators. At some point, I need to say, okay, um, that sounds good. I'll go with it, but again, always, and anything I'm saying and anything anyone's saying, you test it by the word of God and, and, uh, and work through it. Take whatever is of the Lord and, and uh, use it. Okay, so I want to look at these first four trumpets. So we're, we're looping back through now, and we're getting the same period of time, but from a different angle. And this time it's going to be the angle through judgment. So one of it is just maybe just upheaval in the seals. Now it's going to have an edge of judgment and warning. Trumpets. Okay, so as we do, let me give you two Old Testament backdrops that we should have kind of lingering in the back of our minds as we read this wild and crazy imagery, okay? And remember, it's apocalyptic. It's vision. It's, it's meant to give us a sensation, not to give us details. Got to keep that in the back of your mind. Again, I have to tell you that as we come to this. But the two stories behind the trumpets, as the Old Testament uh, uh, context for this, one would be the story of Jericho. There's a story we know. You're like, okay, I can, I can do Jericho. Uh, that, that's a story I can handle. Jericho, Joshua is just about to go into the, to, to, to Jericho and, and to defeat them. He's got his army ready. The battle's the next day. Joshua's out there pacing around. And he's, he's, he's strategizing and he's ready to go. And all of a sudden, a man comes out of the darkness. And uh, he's got his sword drawn. So immediately, you know, Joshua draws his sword. And he, he yells out to the man, are you for us or against us? And the man says, neither. But as the commander of the Lord's army, I come. Oh. So... so <laughs> sheathes his sword 
And he says, look, I have delivered Jericho to you. The reason he's coming out of Jericho with his sword drawn is because he's just coming from the battle. Right? I've just defeated Jericho. I'm coming to tell you about it. And he says, now listen, here's your strategy for tomorrow. Now, I'm sure Jericho, he's a great commander. He had a wonderful, I'm sure he had a brilliant strategy. This is where the, the, the foolishness of the Lord, you know, is just, you know, wiser than the wisdom of men. So basically, Joshua's planned out this wonderful strategy and now <laughs> throw it away. And he says, here's your strategy. And Joshua's got to be all ears. He says, all right. He says, assemble your army tomorrow. March to the city. Ooh, yes, I had that on my list too. And he says, then put your priests in the front. That was not on my list. Um, and make sure they have trumpets with them. <laughs> okay, so we're going to have some music. I want them to play music, and, and they're going to be in the front. Then when you get there, and okay, Jericho, I, I think Joshua's still with him at this point. But then he says, march right around the city. Okay, give away all elements of surprise, gone. March around the city, and then go home. Just go right back to your camp. <laughs> That's your strategy. Tomorrow, the next day, day two, same thing. Day three, same thing. Okay, we get the point. Now, by day four or five, I have to believe the Jericho citizens, just kind of looking over the, (laughs) this army just marching around, ooh, so intimidating with those priests down there looking at them. And and these guys just, you know, the whole time just kind of marching and looking up and, you know, they're just walking around the city. But But, oh, but then he says, but on the seventh day, march around these poor guys. It's not like marching around this church. It's like marching around Middletown, probably. And he says, on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then blow the trumpets. Blow the trumpets and then yell. That's, that's also not a normal strategy for winning. But, and then yell. Now, the trumpets that are being blown at Jericho are warnings. The marching around the city and the blowing of these trumpets are warnings. You can mock if you want, if you live in Jericho. You can call it foolishness, but the walls are coming down. There is cataclysmic judgment at the end of this march. So hear the trumpets and act appropriately. That's one image that's going on in the backdrop here as now the angels are giving these trumpets. Trumpets are going to be blown throughout history. Throughout this whole age, trumpets are being blown. Do you have ears to hear them? Are you hearing the trumpets and acting appropriately? That's one story in the background. The second story in the background is the story of the ten plagues. Because the ten plagues, we don't have trumpets involved, but we have a very similar thing, and in the trumpets though we're going to have to really fly through them, you're going to see little echoes, or hear little echoes of the plagues. Hail, and blood, and fouled water, and the sun being darkened. They're meant to be just little echoes of the ten plagues as these trumpets come. Now, what were the ten plagues? The ten plagues were a lot like Jericho or Joshua marching around Jericho. They were shots across the bow. They were warnings to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Hear the trumpet and act appropriately. So those, but these, but the warnings in the plagues also had an edge of judgment to them. They hurt. The trumpets didn't really hurt as they're marching around you, but the plagues hurt. They had an edge of judgment to them. So lice, you know, and then boils, you know, and blood in your water, frogs in your bed. 
You know, it's just, there, was a little, there was an edge to those that the trumpets don't have. And you're getting all of that as we come now to these trumpets. These trumpets are sounded throughout history. If my reading of the book is right, they're sounded throughout history and they're warnings of a coming judgment. Now John is encouraging us to see history. The cry of the martyrs has been for judgment. Fire's been thrown down and now we're going to get these trumpet judgments and these trumpet warnings to the powers that be, to the powers that oppress God's people, to the principalities and powers that oppose us, that the end is coming and they had better act appropriately. So the warnings of greater judgment. Trumpets one through four have to do with broad judgment over the earth. And I'm going to tell you right now, most of these have to do with the falling of kingdoms. At first read, you would not see it, but you just have to, uh, you have to understand some of the biblical imagery that's going on behind here. I'll do my best to, to uh, go over it with you. And then, but I really want to get through them to get to the observations on the other side. I want to make four observations about these trumpets. The first trumpet in, uh, in, in chapter 8, verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And you can hear the uh, seventh plague there. Hail and lightning or hail and fire. The blood is not in that one, but so we have an added dimension. Uh, hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. Now, I'll spend a little time on this in the first one, and then, then we'll just say, okay, I'll take it for granted. But this is not a literal, it's not one day going to rain blood. Okay, there will be hail, but when you see hail, don't think we're in the middle of this trumpet necessarily. But but there will be trumpet and uh, there will be hail and lightning. But but there's not going to come a time where all of a sudden there's going to be big hail and and blood uh, mixing with it coming down. And all of a sudden, you know, a third of the trees are burned up on the earth and all the grass is burned up. If we're reading it that way, we're reading it we're reading it wrong. We don't want to link this to any moment in history. It's a symbolic vision of God's judgment upon. The earth. We know this because all the grass is burned up. But then later in the fifth seal, when the locusts come out, they're told not to eat the grass, but the grass is already gone. See, and you say, hello, you're, that you're reading the vision wrong. That's not, don't, don't read it that way. It's not, it's not a math equation. This is, this is meant to draw you into some vision of his judgment. What do I think is going on in this? One, we have a ramped up intensity. Notice a third of this and a third of that. We're going to hear a lot of that through these trumpets. Which, which is ramped up from the time of the seals. In the seals, it was you could harm a quarter. Now in the trumpets, it's a third. With the bulls, it will be complete. So it's just a vision. As we move in the book, John is ramping up the intensity of the vision. I think what's going on here are natural disasters and even the falling of kingdoms. Most of these images are going to be the falling of kingdoms. And I'll make that uh, point in the next couple trumpets. But with the fire coming down out of heaven and the hail, what does the hail do? It destroys the crops. What does the fire do? It destroys the crops. We have the grass, the trees being burned up. I think this image, you can study it, is an image of natural disaster, destruction of the food supply, famine that a third of the world experiences. And by third of the world, it just means, look, a significant proportion of the population in any given generation is going to feel this. That's what I think it means, a third of the trees, a third of this. It just means a significant 
proportion of the population is going to feel this in any given generation. They're going to feel the famine. They're going to feel the natural disaster and the destruction that comes. And when they do, they will hear a trumpet. It will be a trumpet of a greater judgment. Let me move to the second one. The second uh, trumpet blows and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third, again, a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, apocalyptic vision. Don't look for, some have tried to link this. They say, oh, in their mind, it would have been Mount Vesuvius, a firing volcanic mountain that went down into the sea and caused Pompeii. No, no, don't, don't, don't try to link it to that one thing. We're, we're making a mistake again if we do that. There's no particular historical referent. Rather, in the Bible, a mountain represents a kingdom. A mountain represents a great city. So in Daniel, when he gets his vision, when the little stone comes and hits the statue, we've talked about this vision. The little stone comes to the statue with the feet of mixed iron and clay. The little stone strikes the statue and the statue crumbles. Then we're told the little rock, which ultimately is Christ, becomes a great and mighty mountain. The great and mighty mountain is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Or let me give you all throughout the Old Testament, great kingdoms, Babylon, Assyria, um, Persia are referred to as mountains. But let me give you the, the best one to relate to this. Jeremiah uh, 51, verse 25. The Lord is prophesying to Babylon. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the rocks and make you a burnt mountain. Okay, so there you have an image a lot like what's going on here. So if we have the Old Testament in our mind, when we hear, oh, I saw a mountain on fire thrown into the sea, we don't think, whoa, whoa, what mountain will this be? We think, oh, the kingdom's going down. Now, if you're in Rome, and, and Rome is the great kingdom, the mighty mountain that is oppressing you, this vision is saying Rome's going down. Rome's going into the sea. It's going to become a ball of fire, and it's going to go down into the sea, not literally the ocean, but down into the sea. And when it does, it's going to have cataclysmic consequences. We're going to read this again. So we'll come back to this in chapter 18. Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. And all the merchants of the sea cry out, oh my goodness, right? A third of the ships are destroyed. There's commercial devastation when Rome goes down. There's economic nightmares when Rome goes down. And that, I think, is part of the image we're getting here. It, it might, this image of a mountain going into the sea, uh, you remember when Jesus says, if you have faith, faith like a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. When I was a little kid, I would look at the Shangam Ridge and I would say, this time I'm really going to believe. And one time, I'm just going to say, just to try it, to say, I'm going to look at that mountain and I'm going to say, go into the sea and see if it'll go. And of course, it never moved. You might have known. But I always wondered if anybody could do it. Is there anybody that had that kind of faith that could look at a mountain and say, yeah, hey, you, in the sea. And all of a sudden, you know, just, um, but this, I think, gives you, this helped me. It made me stop talking to the mountains because, because what this is telling us is that's not what it means. It doesn't mean you're going to say to that mountain, go. It means when you're suffering under Rome and you pray for Rome to be brought down, it will. The prayer of the martyrs goes up, right? And eventually the Lord takes those prayers and sends fire down upon the earth. So stop talking to the Shangam Ridge. And 
and pray for the bringing down of ISIS. Lord, let ISIS be cast into the sea. And the Lord will answer that prayer in his time. Pray and wait. But that's, that's what it means, that this mountain will be cast. Pray for the bringing down of North Korea so that Christians are free to worship in North Korea. Pray against that mountain. And one day, this vision is telling you the trumpet will blast and you will see it go into the sea and you will hear a warning to all kingdoms that God reigns, just like, just like in the plagues. By this, you will know that I alone am God. That was the point of all the plagues. And when you see North Korea go down and that land filled with the glory of God, you will say, yes, our God reigns. So that's, that's what it means, the, the bringing down. So again, these are political things. Don't look for, for a mountain literally to tumble in there. Of course, if that happens next week, we got to rethink this. <laughs> exactly. Um, then, okay, so the third one. So we have, we have the mountain going into the sea. Then uh, um, the, the third one. The third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on the third of the rivers, again with the third. And on the springs of water, the name of the star is Wormwood, which means bitterness. It's a bitter herb. It poisons the water if it gets in there. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter or, or polluted. Here again, we have like a little echo of the first plague in Egypt with the polluting of the waters with blood. I mean, we've seen the, the trees and the mountains, and the sea, and now even drinking water. So we just see these broad uh, images being used for God's uh, trumpet judgments. A star falls. It's not a literal star. Don't look for a meteor or a falling star, because in chapter 9, the star is actually a person or a being or an angel. Um, And the star that had fallen to the earth was given a key. So again, you just got to be careful how you read the book. We're not looking for an actual star to fall. So we have this heavenly image maybe of a king. A lot of times stars are used for angels, sometimes for kings. Um, And the idea is they will fall. And not only will they fall, but when they fall, all the inhabitants will have to drink the pollution of their idolatry. I think that's the image here. Now I get this. So so when when Rome goes down, everybody will suffer. They're all going to have to drink from the pollution of Rome's idolatry. That's my take. Jeremiah 9 Oh, uh, yeah. Jeremiah 9, verses 14 and 15. The Lord is reprimanding his people for their idolatry. It's, it's usually about idolatry. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. So, the point is, because of their idolatry, they're going to have to drink this poison. And the poison is the poison of their own idolatry. Um, remember the story in, in uh, the, the Golden Calf? Very bizarre moment in this story, too. So much of the Bible is filled with great stories. Um, because they, they're, they're, Moses goes up on the mountain, and, and the people are down below, and they kind of get tired, and they say, you know, make us a... We talked about this. You know, make us a God that we may worship him. So he gets the thing, makes the golden calf. And, and the Lord, Moses up there with the Lord on behalf of these people. And the Lord says, you know, I'm done with them. I'm done. I'm, done. I'm going to kill them all. Moses said, what? We just, came, we just came out of Egypt. Like, we went through all that. He says, there are a bunch of idol worshipers down there. I, I have one. Moses said, give me a minute. <laughs> he goes down the mountain. He comes, Aaron, what the heck? What are you doing? And, of course, Aaron has that great line, I don't know. I took, the ma- I took the gold, I threw it in the fire, out came a calf. And then, remember, they're all, they're getting naked, 
It's really a bizarre scene. They're naked and they're dancing around the, they're dancing around the fire and, and, and the golden calf and they're dancing and, and Aaron's saying, behold, the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and they're worshiping the golden calf. And Moses is just incredible. He can't believe, what are you, crazy? And the Lord wants to kill all of you. And so then, he, and then Moses kills a bunch of them. So he does, the passage does have judgment, but then he does an amazing thing. He says, give me the calf. He gets the calf, he grinds it up into powder puts it in water, and makes him drink it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a strange part of that story. But I, I think that that's something like what's going on. It's just a funny part of that. You're going to drink. Oh, you want to worship? Okay, here, drink it. Drink the pollution of your own idolatry. you got to live with it. And so here, this star is going to fall. Let's just assume for the moment that it is, again, Rome. It's Caesar. is going to fall. The whole thing's going down, and you're going to have to drink the citizens, unfortunately, of this kingdom are going to have to drink of the polluted waters of Rome's idolatry. The fourth, again, go, there's other speculations. Then the, uh, the fourth, verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of their day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of their night. So darkness reminds us of the ninth plague when the sun is darkened and Ra, the great sun god, is seemingly defeated. <clears throat> Again, sun, moon, and stars are images of kings usually. Remember Joseph's dream? They're all going to rule, but they're going to bow down before me. The sun, moon, and stars bows down to, uh, to him. Uh, darkness is a sign of judgment. And so again, I think it's just another judgment of the powers that, uh, that you're under. It's a, it's a vision of the destruction of Rome. And then every oppressive power throughout all the ages. Now, take that for what it's worth, but let me make four observations about them, whether you disagree about what the exact thing was. Here's four things I want you to take away from this. Number one, I think these are the afflictions of our age. The trumpets are the afflictions of our age, be they natural disasters, economic collapses, the collapse of kingdoms, cultural pollutions, which we see in our own culture, the pollution of our culture that we as Americans are drinking is not just, we look at the pollution of our culture and we think, oh boy, we're going to get judged one day. But the Bible actually says, no, that is the judgment. That is the judgment. You're going to drink the pollution of your idolatry. As we go through this gay marriage business and we're wrestling through how we're going to deal with homosexuality and we have the sexual immorality, not just homosexuality, but on every level, the perversions of this culture, that's not going to get us judged, though it will do that too. It is the judgment. It's us drinking the pollution of our own idolatry. You want to worship those gods? Then here, drink those waters. So these are the affli- The trumpets are the afflict. Hear that. You've got to hear the trumpets as they blast. Second observation, they are the judgments of God. I just said that about cultural pollutions. They are the judgments of God. Now, here's where it gets slightly offensive and also a little dangerous. Because I said natural disasters, economic collapses, real people get hurt in these things. Right? This isn't just like fictional stuff. Hurricane Sandy comes and people die. Tsunamis wash in, people die. Economic collapses come, people die. Kingdoms go down, people suffer and die. Okay, So I want to be real careful here, but nonetheless, I want to say what I think the Bible demands. These are judgments from God sent from heaven. Each of these comes from heaven. 
the Lord sends these hard things. So I want to say that on the one hand, but then I also want to offer a caution on the other hand that we don't over-particularize our interpretation of these things. So when Hurricane Sandy comes ripping through, I want to say that is a judgment of God. What I don't want to say is, therefore, the people of New Jersey are really sinful. They had it coming to them. You understand? I want to say this is God's judgment on the age. And a third of the earth gets it from different time to time. In this case, Lower Manhattan and Jersey got it. And, and at one point, Louisiana got it with Katrina. And at another point, you know, uh, Asia got it with the big tsunami. And another point, a town, you know, Joplin, Missouri got it in a tornado. And you know, So we all suffer it, but I don't want to link it and say, oh, Jersey got hit? Oh, wow, what Jersey do to bring that on? That's Job's counselors kind of stuff. I don't, we don't want to do that. But on the other hand, I don't want to slip the other way and go, oh, it's just a natural disaster. Nothing natural about it in that sense. It is the judgment of God. Let him who has ears hear the blast of the trumpets. These are judgments on the whole age. It's what it means to be in a cursed world, in a world in rebellion against God. Thirdly, so they're afflictions of our age. They are judgments from God. Thirdly, they are warnings. And I want to put this, I want to say they are merely warnings. So I want to add weight to this. They are merely, Hurricane Sandy is merely a warning. I don't want to trivialize anyone's death in that or anyone's suffering or hardship. I'm not. We're zoomed out. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing pastoral counseling here. If I'm doing pastoral counseling to a person who lost a child in Hurricane Sandy, I'm talking completely differently. You understand? We're, we're looking at a text now. We want, to make, we want to make broad theological points. This is not the way I'm going to talk to somebody who just lost a child. But as we look and scan out with Revelation lenses, these are mere warnings. What Hurricane Sandy and all these kinds of things, cancer wards, destructions of economies, the collapsing of kingdoms, cultural pollutions, what they tell us is all is not right with the world. Something's wrong. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. Now, if we're offended by the idea that a Hurricane Sandy might be a warning judgment by God, we're going to have a big, big problem with the book of Revelation. Because if you think Hurricane Sandy is offensive that God would ever send these kinds of things upon humanity, then how are you going to reckon with hell? If Hurricane Sandy is offensive, you haven't seen anything yet. People who are in hell will never say, this is rough, but let me tell you something. You remember Sandy? That was really bad. They're not going to do that. And I'm not trying to be cheeky here. Hurricane Sandy is a mere, it is a trumpet blast to Jericho. It is not the capital J judgment. And we have to hear then the sounding of these trumpets. We haven't seen anything yet. That's what we're told by the fact that these are mere trumpet blasts. So what do we do with them? This is where it gets practical for us now. So what do you do when you hear the trumpet blast? Answer, repent. You say, but what did I do to bring Sandy? You didn't do anything to bring Hurricane Sandy one for one. But what Sandy tells you is things are not right with the world. Are you right with God? Because a major cataclysm is coming. That'll make you forget Hurricane Sandy or the tsunami or anything. So are you right with God? Do you remember that story with Jesus and the disciples in the Tower of Siloam? And they, I mean, they get to ask Jesus what we all want to ask Jesus. 
We all wish we could have audience with Jesus to ask this question. The tower falls, it kills those people, remember? And they, they have God right there they can ask. They don't know he's God at this point, but they have him. They get to ask him what we all want to ask. And they say, Lord, why'd that tower fall and kill those people? Don't we want to ask that same thing? Lord, why'd those people die in that tsunami? Lord, why are those people dying over there in, in Egypt? Lord, why did that car accident take that man right in his prime? Lord, why is that child in the cancer ward? Like, we want to ask those questions. And they got Jesus' ear. And do you know what does Jesus say to them? Jesus does not give them the answer to the question they want. But he says, I tell you the truth, repent, or you likewise will perish. He didn't say, okay, boys, let me explain this to you now. Why? No, no, no. It's not that easy. There's, no, there's a complexity here that is beyond you. But what he, you know what you need to know, disciples? Repent or you will likewise perish. So when we hear the trumpets, we must re- repent. Not because I caused Hurricane Sandy, but because Hurricane Sandy is a trumpet blast that tells me I must repent. So when you see wildfires in California or the collapse of the Greek economy, or Ebola in West Africa, or a hurricane in New Jersey. When you hear about these things, repent. And in this way, I know it's hard to say, and again, if any of you have suffered under these things, this, this will be hard to say here in the moment. But again, I'm not speaking pastorally, I'm speaking broadly. In this way, these trumpet blasts are gracious. They're gracious. Because they keep us from settling in. I would settle, I am settled in. Forget I would settle in. Even in the midst of them, I'm settled in. But in this way, they are gracious. Oh, man, they hurt, but they are gracious. They keep us from settling in in Egypt and make us want to get out of here and get onto the promised land or else we start to settle in. Again, I'm quoting hymns, but there's a great hymn called Lord with Glowing Heart I Praise Thee. I love this line. It's, it, we're singing to each other in the song. And at one point in the song, it says this. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace, brothers and sisters, whose threats, do you think of threats being gracious? Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Right? It, your ease is fatal in this way. Again, not pastoral counseling, but in this broad way, these warnings are gracious. Going around that thing seven times, you have time to act appropriately. We have time to act appropriately. Repent and turn to the Lord. Fourthly, they are ultimately reassurances. They are reassurances, but they are reassurances for suffering saints. Don't forget, the ones here are crying out, how long, O Lord? And to them, they get reassurance. Because if you're in Egypt, 400 years of slavery. If you're in Rome and you're losing your job and you're being sent to prison and you have friends who are being burned at the stake like Polycarp, you might be saying, "My God, are you, God, are you here? Have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned us? Have we offended you? Have you turned from us? Like you would ask those kinds of questions if you were really suffering and if you were one of these saints. And so you're crying to the Lord. And then one day you're crying out to the Lord and this guy Moses shows up and he says, I was talking to a burning bush and it said, I'm going to deliver you. And you're like, get out of here. You, we know you, get, get away. And then the next day you wake up and you go turn on your faucet and blood comes out. You say, what in the world? And you go over to the, the pond outside and the pond's full of blood. And you say, hey, you all know what's going on there. Like our water is blood. And Moses shows back up and he says, God's afoot. God's going to war against Pharaoh. You say, really? And the next day you wake up and there's frogs in your bed. 
You say, what is this about? He says, God's at war with Pharaoh. Right? If you were in Egypt under that and you saw these things, you would say, oh, yes, Lord Jesus, you're at work. You are not going to let this stand. Now, here's the reason none of us feel this way is because we really like Egypt. That's what I'm saying. Right? We, I'm settled in. If we were living under ISIS, again, and I'm not, I don't mean to talk us down because, like, okay, God, that's where the real... We have our own suffering. We have our own challenges to deal with here. So I'm not saying real Christians would be in places where we're suffering. All I'm saying is we have the things we have to guard against, and we have to guard against settling in and complacency. You know, we have to settle in, because if, if we were like these, then we would hear the trumpets and we'd say, we know it's coming. Every trumpet blast, we'd say, we're going to be free. We're going to have the victory. Rome's going down. So when I see my own country, which I love, spiraling, I hear the trumpet blast, what do I say? Because right, I'm watching all kinds of stupid things happen to this country that really make me sick. I'm watching my health care crumble and fall apart. I'm watching a country begin not just to accept homosexuals. Of course, there's homosexuals. We, we deal with that, right? We understand. No, no, we celebrate it. We're going to celebrate it, and we're going to persecute anyone who has even a different vision. Forget anybody who's persecuting homosexuals. No, we're going to persecute people who just say, no, I have, a, I have a problem with this, or here's my biblical position on this. We're going to talk about that later. I, and it makes me sick. But what do I, what, how do I respond to that? I should say, Lord, if you are humbling America because you're not going to tolerate its idolatry, if you are going to humble us to bring us down to a place of repentance, then bring it on. The problem is I really don't want that because I want my health care. <laughs> you understand? I want my kids to grow up in the America that my grandfather grew up in. See, but now my own idolatry gets revealed. Now, all of a sudden, I start show, it starts showing what's really important to me. Not the cry of the martyrs, but Norman Rockwell America. That's really my idol. And so I'm not crying out for this. I'm not celebrating like, yes, the Lord is at war with the idolatry of America. I'm going, oh, please, but, but not my health care, right? <laughs> but not that. So my own idolatry gets exposed. So the trumpets remind us that behind all these Natural, natural disasters and so forth, there's a, deeper, there's a deeper issue. And you're never going to hear about that on Fox News. You're never going to hear about that on MSNBC or CNBC or Fox Business or the Weather Channel. So when there's a fire, when there's a fire out in California, they're never going to get on and go, hey, Bob, you think we need to repent? <laughs> no, they're going to say, hey, somebody flicked a cigarette. Or when we hear about the, the, the collapse in Greece, no one's going to go, Bob, you think we need to repent? Hey, Sally, what's your thoughts on Revelation chapter? They're not, we're never going to hear that. We're always going to get the penultimate causes. Here's why, the, here's why the euro's struggling. Here's why the dollar's doing this. Here's why North Korea's doing that. Right? There's always, they're always dealing on this surface, and that's fine. There are real reasons why things happen at that level. But Revelation says, don't just go there. Go here and hear the trumpet blasting. Now, I'm doing myself in. At the end of chapter 8, we've done with the four trumpets. And then he says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets and the three angels are about to blow. So now we get this image of an eagle, this predatory bird. And we're Americans, so we say, yay, an eagle. And the revelation goes, no, no, <laughs> predator. <Yeah. laughs> we love the And there's another one with loving eagles. I love eagles. But this is, this is an eagle that if you are not on Christ's team, you're not happy to see. This eagle is coming to make war. Now, if you're a Christian, you do like the eagle. Remember Revelation chapter 19? 
I bore you up on eagle's wings to deliver you. So the eagle for us is deliverance. But the eagle for those who are not God's people is not good. Um, Here, uh, somewhere. Oh, yeah, Hosea 8. Hosea 8. Set the trumpet to your mouth. In the connection here. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He will come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So there you have the image of the eagle and the trumpet. In that case, coming against the house of the Lord for their idolatry. But here they are coming against those who are persecuting his church. Yes, ma'am. Yes, it is. Because it does not fit with my point, Amy. So if you... <laughs> so anytime you're going to do that, check with me beforehand. Um, well, I'm reading... The NIV, I think, has that. You can check. If not and I'm wrong, discount that. Um, but we could talk about that later. I really want to push through these two. So the eagle, anyway, comes and he's, he's hailing out woes. These next three are going to be bad. These next three trumpets are really going to be bad. Right? At least that's, that's the image here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, whoa is not like, oh, pity, pity. It's damnation, damnation, cursed, cursed, cursed. Three times, by the way, right? So, okay, now, these next two, and I'll try to zip through them, but you're going to hate me for doing it because they're so wild. You're going to say you can't possibly be, <laughs> be right in your interpretation of these. Because in the crazy drama of these images, I think there's something relatively simple and unassuming happening which will be kind of hard to believe. Just remember, this is really apocalyptic, okay? The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw the star fallen from heaven to the earth. He was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke from the smoke with the shaft, from the shaft. Then the smoke, out of the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So this is a, this is a trumpet now that is not, we are excluded from this. This is a trumpet only against non-believers, which makes it challenging. They were allowed to torment them for five months. Interestingly, that's the lifespan of a locust. So these locusts come out. They're allowed to torment non-believers for about five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will, they will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like gold crowns. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, their teeth like lion's. As I told you, <laughs> they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. So we got locusts with breastplates. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots. Some say those are uh, helicopters. They're not. Um, and, and like horses rushing into battle. They have tails like the stings of scorpions. And they have the power to hurt people for five months. And it's in their tails. And they, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is Apollyon. Okay, so are you good with that? You... <laughs> Are you clicking right along? You're like, yep, got that one. Um, whoa. All right, so we got a key. He unlocks a shaft. Smoke comes out. There's, then there's locusts. And then these locusts, they have tails, and they're stinging people with scorpions and teeth like lions and breastplates. Really, it's very apocalyptic. Just stand back and go, ooh. Right? Whatever you think is going on, just go, oh, my goodness. That's, that's bad. Okay, so, um, but they're told not to harm the grass, which is weird for locusts because that's what locusts do. But these aren't really locusts. Um, a locust, it, this takes us back to the prophet Joel, the prophet Amos, where oncoming armies were called locusts, an army of locusts 
Go back and read in Joel and Amos. I, I should have passages for you, but both of them use like the coming Assyrian army like locusts and they're going to just come up. It's really scary. They're going to come and they're just going to come over the walls and in your house and they're going to destroy you. And, and what that group of locusts don't destroy, the next group of locusts. I mean, it's really like intimidating language about an oncoming army. Now, if you lived in Rome, this would sound a lot like the Germanic barbarians with the wavy hair like women. I wouldn't tell the barbarians their hair looks like women, but you might hear it in this. Their hair is like women. They got these teeth. They're tall, strong. They're warriors riding on these horses. That's actually the kind of group that comes in and destroys uh, Rome. And I think there is some, I think there's an echo of that. Again, all of these have kind of dealt with the destruction of Rome. But for us, not just Rome, but every power that oppresses and opposes his church. But what I think this what the trumpet is. What is this trumpet that only affects non-believers? So the trumpet's blowing. He says to the locusts, but you can't harm the believers. You can't harm those who have the mark on their head. This is why people say this has to be like the last couple of years. No, we're not. I don't think we're the grass. Well, well, maybe because he says don't harm the grass, but in the last one, the grass was all destroyed. So I, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't try to link it just with that. But maybe you could. Maybe in this one, you could say, yeah, maybe the grass kind of represents it. So the question is, again, people say it has to be the end times because where else are we going to see a bunch of locusts that just come around or or horses and don't kill believers but only kill non-believers? This trumpet, I believe, is a trumpet of despair. That's what the trumpet is. And that's why it only affects non-believers. Let me make my case. You can go study because I want to get to something at the end. And we're going to go late and I'm going to, I apologize. I won't, I'll try to make it not too late. This is a trumpet of, if you have to go, I will not be offended. It's a trumpet of despair. Rome is going to go down by this oncoming horde, this army, like locusts, that's going to come and destroy them. And when they go down, non-believers are going to want to jump off buildings. Why? Because all their investment, all their life is tied up in Rome. They have bought the lie. They have bought into the lie of Rome. And when it goes down, if all your investments are in that, when it goes down, you go down. And you are filled with absolute dread and despair. Remember what's happening. What is the effect of this? The people cry out for death, but death does not come. It's absolute and utter despair. I believe that what this trumpet is, is a trumpet of despair for those who put their hopes and all their eggs in the basket of idolatrous earthly kingdoms. In this case, for them, it is the kingdom of Rome. Let us be careful not to do this in the kingdom, if you will, of America. Those who are fully invested in the kingdoms of this world collapse and despair when those kingdoms go down. All your, money, all your hopes and dreams are in the American economy. And when it crashes in 29, you go up to the top of a building and you jump off because your whole life just went down the toilet. When Japan goes down, you commit Harry Carry because everything about me is tied up with Japan. I think what we have here are citizens in Rome who, again, this, why does this not affect Christians? Because Christians' hope is not in Rome. You know, when Rome started to collapse, St. Augustine wrote the city of God. And he wrote it because there were Christians who were falling apart. Like, oh, no, the barbarians were coming in and sacking Rome. And Christians were going, What's, what now? What's going to become of us? And Augustine said, are you out of your minds? We're not part of the city of man. We're part of the city of God. It's an everlasting city. We have a lasting hope. 
Our confidence and our hope is not established in Rome or America or anywhere else. Uh, one more passage. Remember in Jerusalem, uh, uh, Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking to his readers. This is also contested, but I I'm, have absolute confidence. In Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's coming. He's warning them. Rome's going to come and destroy the city. Remember he says, I hope you're not pregnant when this happens. I hope it doesn't come in the winter. Some people think this is talking about the end times. No, he's talking about the destruction. Why, who cares when the second coming comes in the winter? It's like, oh, here comes Jesus, but it's really cold outside. You know? <laughs> I mean, come on. No, no he's, say, he's saying, look, Rome is going to be, Rome's going to come destroy Jerusalem. They do it in 70 AD. But what does he say to them? But when that comes, this is why I hope you're not pregnant, because you've got to run. Head for the hills. Don't fight for this city. Do you know, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports this, that when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, those who stayed behind to fight for it, because this is God's city, all our hope is in this city, and all our hope is in this temple, and we will defend it to the bitter end. And Rome starved them out. He, they surrounded the scene and starved them out. And Josephus says, and the people of Jerusalem cried out for death, but death would not come. Now, that's before this is written. But I think, I think John is giving us an echo of that. And what he's saying is, look, if you are fully invested in the kingdoms of this world, then when that trumpet blows, you will despair and you will dread because your life goes up in smoke. I think the challenge to us in this is check out your portfolio. Not necessarily your 401k, but maybe that too. But check out your portfolio. Where is your investment? Where is your emotional investment? Where's your financial investment? Where are you spending your energy, your time, your hopes and dreams? Where does your mind go when you have blank time in your head? Are, where, are you more concerned about gay marriage in America than you are about the suffering of our brothers and sisters in, in Syria? See, that'll be a little indicator right there. I'm watching my culture struggle, which is serious. Don't get me wrong. There's real things, right? But those are my brothers. I'm going to spend eternity with those guys. So, so where, again, where's my, where's, what's really make, what brings me to tears? The collapse of America? America's not going to last. And I say this as a patriotic. You know, I bleed red, white, and blue. I love my country. But I got to love my country so much that if the Lord needs to do this to it to humble it, then okay. I got to love it so much I want it to repent so that the knowledge of Christ flows over this land. I have to be careful that America is not where all my hopes and dreams are because if so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be suckered in on this fifth trumpet. So be careful. The last trumpet. Well, not the last, but the sixth. And then next week, we're going to look at another intermission. So the sixth trumpet, verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice, and this is also crazy. Uh, from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So now we have killing. Before they're crying out for death and it wouldn't come. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. We got 2 million troops. I heard their number and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The image here is hellish. Fire, smoke, and brimstone. It's a hell, so there's a hellishness to these, these riders. Their horses were like lion, the heads of their horses were like lion heads, and fire, smoke, and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. That's important here. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind were not killed by these plagues. I'm going to get to that in just one second. Okay. Without going through all the details like the other one, let me tell you what I think this is. If the fifth was dread and despair, which again does not affect Christians, 
because our anchor is in an everlasting kingdom. And therefore, though I will be sad if America goes down, I'm not jumping off any bridges because I'm part of an eternal kingdom. This trumpet is delusion and deception. Delusion and deception. And in this case also, it does not work on, this, this trumpet does not affect believers. This is a trumpet of delusion. The key to this is that the power of these horses that harms us is in their mouth. And their tails are like serpents. So their power is in their mouths and in their tails, which are like serpents. The death and the wrath of God, the judgment that's poured out here, I will argue, is spiritual blindness and deception and delusion. That is, don't look for someday these horses to come with lion's teeth riding through your town. This trumpet just happened today, is what I'm arguing. This trumpet just happened today. From all the false prophets of our culture who who distract us from the underlying issue that should cause us to repent and say, everything's okay, it's just a matter of economics. Everything's okay, it's just meteorological. It is meteorological, but there's something deeper it's not just political. It's not just economic. There's a deeper issue. But for everyone who says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about that. Look up here. It's just up here. That is the kind of delusion that represents this trumpet. It's a trumpet that blinds people so that they refuse to get down to the deeper issue and therefore never repent. Now, let me, let me give you from the scriptures quickly two little touchstones of this. First, Isaiah 6, which we've referenced already. Remember at the end of Isaiah 6, he falls down dead. The Lord picks him up puts the coal to his lips, says, who will go for me? Isaiah says, oh, send me. And then the Lord says this to him. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest with their eyes they see and with their ears they hear and understand with their heart and return and be healed. His judgment on them was blindness. Or how about Romans chapter 1? What is, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven, being revealed from heaven against all, unga- all ungodlessness. And you say, what does that look like? And he tells us. Therefore, he handed them over. He gave them over to their sinfulness. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to, become, pre- professing to be fools, they be, uh, wise, they became fools. That's what the wrath of God looks like. Blindness. Wait, we think, oh, it's scary. It's going to look like lightning comes striking people, fire out of heaven. Okay, it's a trumpet, but the ultimate judgment, and this does not affect us because we see we're not blinded. May God have mercy. Or how about this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. And this really gets to it. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Unrighteous deception. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I know the image is crazy and scary and horses and lion's teeth, but underneath it, I think the trumpet is delusion. With their mouth they deceive and they kill and judgment comes. Now, What do we do as Christians? We repent, but notice, and this brings us to the end, and Matt and Andy are going to hand something out in one second. 
and then we're going to close. When we hear these things, as I said, with the trumpets, we ought to repent. But notice what happens at the very end of this, the last, the sixth trumpet. Verse 20, and the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The trumpets call us to repent, but these people are deluded. And those who are not destroyed by them apparently are not moved by all the trumpets. They look over the walls at the people blowing the trumpets and say, oh, ha, ha, ha. They would not repent of their idolatry, of things they made of wood, stone, and bronze. How stupid do you have to be to make something out of wood and then worship it? How dumb do you have to be to worship your job or to worship money or to worship sex or to worship any of these things? How stupid do you have to be? But this is the blindness of our culture and they would not repent. This is what scares me about America. Do we hear anybody, even Christians, saying what is the deep level under which, uh, which undergirds these problems for which we must repent? We are delusional. 9-11 happens, and I'm not, I'm not, I have to be careful here. 9-11 happens, we get all our congresspeople standing on the steps of the building singing God bless America. And I understand it. It almost, it brought me to tears, Right? Because I'm a Christian, and I want God to bless this land. And I'm not in any way what I'm going to say now drawing a connection to why 9-11 happened. Don't, don't mistake that. But any of the calamities that we struggle in this land, any trumpet that blows, I think to myself, how can we be a country that kills 50 million babies and at the seventh inning of a baseball game sing God bless America? We just expect, yeah, God, yeah, God bless us. Delusional. Like, we don't think to ourselves, maybe we have some reason to repent in this country. And then also personally, where do we need to repent? But culturally speaking, do do we ever cry out for repentance? No, because of the delusion. But let it not affect us. We are those who are sealed. We have nothing to fear here because we are sealed. And these ultimately do not affect those who are sealed. Now, Andy and Matt, where are you? Hand these out. I want to read this in closing. Where's Andy? Don't play Andy out of the work. This, oh, oh, that we would be like Uganda. Let me tell you something while this is getting handed out. Two years ago, I'm preaching on Revelation. Maybe three, I can't remember. I am literally on this passage. Okay. I'm laying in bed at night on Saturday night. I have to preach the next day on this passage. I click on Drudge. Like, I got my own issues. I like this level, too. I got to know what's going on here. I click on Drudge, and it says, President of Uganda issues national prayer of repentance. I said, you got to be kidding me. Click. What? This, this has got to be bogus. Oh, that America, and I don't know the state of Uganda now, But all I know is the president of Uganda prayed this prayer publicly. He took a beating from the American press for doing this kind of thing. Listen to this and we will close. Okay, yeah, Amy knows. She knows Africa. Listen to this. Father God in heaven, today we stand here as Ugandans to thank you for Uganda. 
We thank you for all your goodness to us. I stand here today to close the evil past, and especially in the last 50 years of our national leadership history and at the threshold of a new dispensation in the life of this nation. I stand here on my own behalf and on behalf of my predecessors to repent. We ask for your forgiveness. We confess these sins which have greatly hampered our national cohesion and delayed our political, social, and economic transformation. We confess sins of idolatry and witchcraft which are rampant in our land. We confess sins of shedding innocent blood, sins of political hypocrisy, dishonesty, intrigue, and betrayal. Forgive us of sins of pride, tribalism, and sectarianism, sins of laziness, indifference, and irresponsibility, sins of corruption and bribery that have eroded our national resources, sins of sexual immorality and drunkenness, debauchery, sins of unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, and revenge, sins of injustice, oppression, and exploitation, sins of rebellion, insubordination, strife, and conflict. These sins and many others have characterized our past leadership, especially the last 50 years of our history. Lord, forgive us and give us a new beginning. Give us a heart to love you, to fear you, and to seek you. Take away from us all the above sins. We want to dedicate this nation to you so that you will be our God and guide. We want Uganda to be known as a nation that fears God and as a nation whose foundations are firmly rooted in righteousness and justice to fulfill what the Bible says in Psalm thirty-three, twelve. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, a people you have chosen as your own. I renounce all the evil foundations and covenants that were laid in idolatry and witchcraft. I renounce all the satanic influence on this nation, and I hereby covenant Uganda to you to walk in your ways and experience all your blessings forever. I pray for all these in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Wow. May America, when would you ever say it? May America become like Uganda. Let's pray. Father, again, so easy to point the finger at our culture, but we ask that you would expose to us our own idolatries, lest we be those who are deluded. Help us to fix our hope in you, O Lord, to be part of that amazing crowd of saints in that vision that you gave to John, that 144,000 that has nothing to fear. For, Father, our hope is in you. And, Lord, we pray for our nation. Give this nation ears to hear the trumpets that, Father, they may repent. Guard us from putting all our hopes within this land. Lord, everyone here, we love our country. And yet we want this country to repent and to know you, O Lord God. So help us to to fix our investments that we invest fully upon into your kingdom, O Heavenly Father. We ask this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen. We'll see you next week. Sorry I went late. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the Study Center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.